3: Tuesday morning the 14th of February Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM The Cabinet meets today with a packed agenda that includes signing off on where various ministers will represent Ireland in pretty much every corner of the world of St Patrick's Day. The Government is also expected to approve the establishment of a new Citizens' Assembly on drugs. Legislation preventing people accused of coercive control from cross-examination examining their victims as well as protections for victims of forced marriage, stalking and harassment from being intimidated during trials will also be discussed. Holliers will hope the government will agree a package to help offset rising costs and indeed the cost of living will be discussed in general. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. very good morning to you, Sean, and thank you for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, This is a a conversation that really got underway last night, I think, with a meeting of uh, the three party leaders uh, who will look at some of the measures that could be uh, implemented to offset uh, the increasing costs that people face in their daily lives. That'll go into cabinet today. And then uh, when the doll resumes this afternoon, there's a Sinn Féin private members motion on this.
4: Yeah, that's right. It's probably going to be a brief enough discussion at uh, Cabinet and the leaders I suppose, doing the high-level discussion last night. Then it goes into later on this week when the, the two money ministers, if you like, the finance minister and probably the expenditure minister are due to meet on Thursday and then with the, with the social protection minister, Heather Humphrey, to sort of hash out what's on the table. And lots of things being discussed and lots of different views within the government on how to approach this. And it goes back to that argument that it has been every time during the cost of living debates. Do you lean more towards universal measures that help everybody or do you target them more towards the people people who are, are worst affected, who are on the smallest incomes and perhaps on social welfare. So some of the things that are being talked about uh, is the likes of another electricity credit. Obviously those electricity and gas bills have been landing over the last two weeks and they, they have not been pretty for a lot of people uh, even with the credits that are already there. So that's something that is going to be certainly considered as maybe one of the more universal measures. There's other things like a double payment to child benefit which seems to be favoured uh, by the likes of the Green Party and Fianna Fall. And then the comments from Leo Varadkar from the shirt and the Figale side of things at the weekend suggesting maybe it will be something on social welfare and pensions, which is hindered a broader uh, double payment, perhaps a spring bonus in, uh, akin to the Christmas bonus that would be paid uh, in a couple of weeks' time. That's what Sinn Féin is looking for, certainly, in its motion tonight. And the opposition, obviously, all calling for various different things to be done. So you've got the likes of Labour, who are saying that you need a, a you know mix of all, the smorgasbord of all the bits I've discussed there, and, and a small hike in the social welfare rates that they think should have been done in the last budget and then all the way down to to people before profit who are saying there needs to be a mini budget straight away and that they need to put price caps on electricity and certain other goods the uh, store essentials essentially that you get in the shop and hike social welfare rates up to 300 euro a week mm. so you can see the government sort of under pressure from a few different parties and it, it's just a question of how much money they have and how far they'll actually go
3: okay that spring bonus uh, a little bit like the christmas bonus uh, a double welfare payment
4: that's it, yeah, so double, mm. double rates. So it will yeah. be not only a double payment of the child benefit, but also on other things, say pension, job seekers' around uh, pretty much across the board, similar to the Christmas bonus that a lot of welfare recipients get, most years in the last few years anyway, mm. to, to give them that bit of a hand.
3: Okay, I'm, I'm right in thinking that the Sinn Féin motion calls for whatever money is available to be given uh, to those on the lowest of incomes, uh, whereas the government is arguing that Everybody is feeling uh, the uh, uh, the pressure from the increase in the cost of living.
4: Yeah, well, this kind of goes to the core of the argument. And I think the, the government isn't arguing solely that it is everybody who is feeling it, although that's part of the argument. They also accept that it does need to be something towards those on the lowest incomes. It's where that ends up in the mix because obviously there's only so much money that they can put towards this even with the likes of the bumper tax receipts that we have been having. They're trying to put money into the Green Day Fund, trying to funnel money into all all, all sorts of other things and issues that the country is facing. So it's where that comes out and certainly I think the the Green Party sources I've been speaking to are more on the side of we need to target the, the most vulnerable heaviest, get them uh, as much support as they can. And if there is money left over to do something universal, uh, great. Whereas uh, other elements in the government think maybe, look, everybody is suffering. We need to help everybody out a little bit. They certainly think that the electricity credit up to now has been a success in that it has on to everyone regardless of means test but has helped a lot of people out with bills to maybe blunt the edge of what would be a really really difficult bill to pay for a lot of people even though they have been quite large throughout the winter so yeah. there's some talk of a, another one of those coming in April there's another one due obviously in March already anyway so it would be a total of another four, another 400 euro and that comes at a pretty steep price tag it's 400 million euro so there is an argument to say well could that 400 million euro not be used to maybe give more than just double payment to welfare recipients or to target those who are really really Struggling uh, as opposed to maybe a universal credit which will go to some households that just don't need it.
3: Yeah, and where do you get the 400 million from in the first place? Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, where the hospitality sector may be a bit concerned.
4: Yeah, there was a meeting last night between the um, representatives of the hospitality sector and those two ministers, Pascal Zonen, who and Michael McGrath, about the supports for the sector and the big one, the big talking point I suppose is the VAT rate, the currently reduced VAT rate of, of 9% due to go back to 13.5% at the end of this month and the Restaurants Association of Ireland commissioning research saying that look 9% should be the proper rate for the sector and that is the rate they can pay. They're arguing that a lot of small businesses, cafes and pubs and restaurants are on very very small margins of sort of 1% to 5% profit and then if the tax is eating that up, they're going to be in a, in a much more difficult position. Whereas on the government side, particularly officials, but I think even some of the opposition, the likes of Labour's Jet Nash, who interviewed on this yesterday, saying that, look, this was brought in as a temporary measure, this 9% VAT rate, back during the crash to try and get tourism going again, being a, a low-hanging fruit industry, if you like, that could attract people in. It's now become almost the default for the industry, and it was never meant to be designed by that, and by foregoing the, the many, many millions mm. that you would uh, leave behind if you kept the lower rate of tax... Uh, it's probably not the best way to to deploy resources, so it looks as though that tax rate is going up, even though the ministers didn't give a clear indication to, to industry sources last night.
3: Okay, the cut in excise duty, uh, the discounts, if you like, that we've been enjoying, uh, the petrol and diesel pumps is due to run out this month as well. Uh, well we see uh, the cost of petrol and diesel increase again come the beginning of March.
4: Yeah, this comes down to one of those economics versus politics arguments. And if you ask a lot of economists, they might say, well, look, the price of petrol and diesel has been coming down fairly significantly. Now they're sort of settling in the 170 to 175 a liter, I actually managed to get it for one sixty-two a liter at the weekend, which I was shocked at. I haven't seen prices like that in a, in a long time. Um, and so the, the economist argument might be that this reduced tax rate was brought in in a time of emergency. It's bringing it down sort of in the fifteen to twenty cent region, but now the market is corrected and there probably isn't a huge amount of need for it anymore. On the other hand, the political argument would be how much of a kicking are we going to get if suddenly prices go back up to one eighty and one ninety a liter when people are already struggling with other things. So that. that That one is very much in the pot. My uh, gut says that uh, those exercise guts will probably be extended at least out until summer when, you know, maybe things will be a little bit cheaper again and there could be some sort of a, a graduated restoring of it. But that's one certainly in play.
3: Okay. Uh, When is all of this going to be decided? Because there will be uh, additional measures, uh, whether that's another 200 euro offer, electricity or uh, a spring bonus or whether the VAT goes up or the excise duty cut is removed or whatever. Uh, All of this has to happen over the next couple of weeks, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, a lot of those measures are due to expire at the end of February. So really, you're looking at the next two weeks to to make a proper decision. I don't think they're going to let it go right down to the wire into that final week. So you've got that Cabinet Subcommittee on Economic Affairs meeting later on this week i think a lot of the broad strokes will be finalized then and i would expect that probably the leaders meeting next monday night and into next tuesday's cabinet will be where the the meat of the business gets done
3: okay uh, talk to us uh, about uh, this citizens uh, assembly uh, do we know what the citizens assembly is going to be asked to look at other than uh, the, the subject the use and abuse of drugs
4: yeah, look, it's a broad a broad topic, and I think we found with these citizens' assemblies in the past, they have given uh, breadth and space to talk about all the different issues within a subject, and drugs is a really big one. There's lots of ways that you could go with it. So I imagine its prospect is going to be fairly broad. I think decriminalisation is going to be a key part of it, whether it is, you know, we should go down that route of decriminalisation, maybe also consider whether it should go down route of legalising certain drugs, as some countries have and some states in the US, Washington for example, uh, have gone down that route where you legalise certain, what would be considered I suppose weaker drugs or lower level drugs, uh, like cannabis, not saying that there aren't problems with that obviously, but they are on the lower end or the lower spectrum of things. And So that's where it's going to be. Also just drug use and drug abuse and drug dependence uh, in Ireland. What is the best way to help people? Because quite a lot of people just just don't get that help. And when you're talking about the likes of, say, methadone methadone clinics or rehab clinics you get an awful lot of local opposition towards them it's funny you do find you know with certain communities that they might generally support the idea and that people should absolutely get the help they need but don't necessarily want it in their backyard so what is what is the best way to do that uh, where is the best way to structure it? it it's going to be a pretty broad one but there's a lot of a lot of issues we need to talk to obviously
3: Okay it's not too hard to imagine at this stage uh, given some of the statements that have been made I thought it was remarkable to hear Mihal Martin say he didn't really have a, a problem with the idea of decriminalising cannabis but it's not too hard to believe that in the near future cannabis will be decriminalised in this country and possession of all other drugs will be uh, decriminalised depending on the amount uh, if it's for personal use only.
4: Yeah, so it's like going down a model which other countries have, whereby, you know, the selling, the importation, um, you know, the the industry of drugs, if you like, is still criminalised and Garthie will still seek to prosecute and catch those people. But if you are caught on the street with, you know, a, a small amount of cannabis, that you're not going to be thrown in prison for it or a small amount of another drug. And that the way and in particular, Micheál Martinus was changing a position that he, he might have had for a long time, saying that it isn't a justice matter, it is a health matter, and that's where you need to be able to wean people off it or get people away from it. And also an acceptance that there is a whole industry here that is being funded, obviously a criminal industry that's being funded, and if you take a certain amount of the, away from that, and if you go the way so other countries do and allow cannabis, for example, to be sold in the, the likes of cafes or, or different mm. shops like that, you are taking a big arm away from an unregulated criminal industry and at least there is an element of knowing what's in it. it
3: is you're taking the rat poison out and you're also raising exactly. a lot of money for the exchequer.
4: Well, (laughs) there is that? I mean, God, the tax element of it probably doesn't get talked about enough, but it would certainly be another arm of revenue for the government, but making it safer. And you can see, look, there's been steps towards this. If you go to festivals now, there are tents where they will check the drugs that people are bringing in to see what's in them or see if there's a particular concentration in them, which is something that would have been fairly unthinkable 20 years ago and people are allowed to go off with them again. So the attitude has changed very much about about the public on this, and I think uh, our government is now catching
3: up to it. Okay. well, uh, St. Patrick's Day, just uh, around the corner and about a month from now ministers will be jetting off uh, and where they go will be decided today.
4: Yeah, so they're going in as an underarm memo from the Department of Foreign Affairs that'll get their, their marching orders and get booking flights. Today, we know where Leo Varadkar and Michael Martin are going. They're going to both go to the US. Uh, the teaching a to Washington, obviously, in an annual fixtures. That's where, where Leo Varadkar will, will go to meet Joe Biden and Micheál Martin is due to go to New York as well. And the big focus this year is, of course, going to be on the Good Friday Agreement. All of the different missions, it doesn't, doesn't matter where the ministers are going, they will be plugging Good Friday Agreement, plugging the peace process, uh, and that, you know, Stormont needs to get back. Back up and running, and I think particularly the U.S. trips are going to take on uh, that particular aspect. I imagine there's going to be a few to the UK. Could well see, you know, one, you know, ministers being going to the north as well for Paddy's Day too, and a, a big focus there. But also on our European colleagues to keep up that support that has been there for not only the peace process, but now will be needed when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's going to be the big one. And then there will be other trade missions. Obviously, it's become a really, really big thing in the last five years, even bigger than it sort of ever was before, where Ireland has opened up new missions, particularly across Asia, different parts of the United States, and no doubt ministers will be going to visit those and and trumpet the good word about, uh, what do they call it, Company Ireland, Team Ireland, something Mm -hmm. like
3: that? Yeah, Ireland Inc, maybe. That's the one, that's the one. All right, but I I think um, there's going to be disappointment, will there not, both sides of the Atlantic uh, this St. Patrick's Day, because I imagine there would have been hope up to now that on St. Patrick's Day the President of America would have announced, standing alongside the Taoiseach, that he was going to visit Ireland on the 12th of April to coincide with the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement.
4: Yeah, and look, there's Still some hope of that from people I've been talking to, that it might still be a runner, that it's something the President would like to do, but it does seem to be on his side very contingent on there being a functioning executive in Northern Ireland. I mean, he's not going to visit and trumpet everything when, you know, the whole executive and the whole process that was created by the Good Friday Agreement is is in a bit of tatters because of the row. Over the protocol, a lot of hope last month that there would be a bit more progress made by now, and now things seem to have stalled out. The language has changed a little bit with, instead Of hopefully optimistic about Good Friday, they're just saying, Look, it's not a deadline, we're not not really going to talk about it and hope that it gets sorted by then. So, there is some hope that it could still happen, but that hope does appear to be receding quite a bit.
3: All right, and will there be support uh, for the St. Patrick's Day visits, uh, or will there be any opposition to it, do you think?
4: And look, you always get people who say we shouldn't be spending the money on our ministers to go jet-setting and they should be here focusing on things at home and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And, you know, you can make that, that, that kind of argument every year. Uh, My my own personal view on the US one, whatever about some of the other ones, you you wonder how effective they are. But certainly on the US trip, we are a tiny country in the scale of the world who is guaranteed a meeting with the most powerful leader in the Western world every single year. And, you you know, people say, oh, it's only an hour. Couldn't you do it over Zoom? No, like being in the room for those things is hugely important. I've talked to advisors and different people who've been there in the room down throughout the years. And a huge Mm. amount of business does actually get done, keeping Ireland in the mind of... The, with the US, which is not only important politically, but as a huge investor in Ireland through various different companies. So, look, I think the US per aspect of it is, is absolutely worth it. And you will get a few people saying we shouldn't be spending the money on it. But uh, I think overall it is money well spent.
3: Definitely not a, a junket anyway. It'll be a hard working business uh, visit, I take it.
4: Well, I, I can't speak for uh, every minister, <laughs> but I know having a company, different teaching on those trips before, they do not have a second to have <laughs> a junket on it. Like, they literally do pack these schedules. And obviously, we know this because we have to follow them to all their different events. You're going from 5, 6 o'clock in the morning until 10, 11 o'clock at night most of the days. It's uh, it's by far from relaxing. At least I can take a few days off on a, at the end of it, but uh, then they're, they're usually flying back for some other business. So, certainly on the, the Taoiseach side, they do, they pack a lot in they, these advisors.
3: Very good. All right, Sean, we'll leave it there. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael
4: Michael Reed
0: on LMFM.
3: Now, Women's Aid, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins, is uh, describing uh, the results of the relationship quiz to Into You as shocking. If anything, it would seem to be uh, an understatement to me. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about it, though. Mary Hayes is the 2 Into You Project lead with Women's Aid. Mary, good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, as I say, uh, it seems uh, an understatement to describe the findings. Shocking. I- I'm finding it very difficult to believe how many young people have told you that they've been told by somebody else that they're going to share explicit images of the on the internet or they've been assaulted by their partner or indeed that their partner is going through their phones or is pressurising them to do something that they don't want to do sexually. Uh, What's wrong uh, that this is so commonplace?
5: Yeah, so I suppose the the findings from our relationship quiz are incredibly worrying. You know, almost 16,000 people have said that their partner has threatened to share intimate images or videos of them when they have a fight. And, you know, not only is that um, a crime, it really shows this kind of normalisation of very coercive um, and manipulative behaviours. Another uh, really stark stat um, is around looking through your partner's phone. Um, So almost 13,000 people said that their partner demands to look through their phone and to know who they've been talking to. And really what that is, is it's an invasion of privacy. But this has become so normalized amongst young people. So really what we found is very reflective of um, women's aid research that tells us that relationship abuse against young people is actually quite common, in particular against young women. So we found that one in five young women and one in 11 young men have been subjected to abuse between the ages of 18 and 25, and actually for the majority of young women, the hmm. abuse started before they turned 18, so they would have been considered minors.
3: All right, and these are young people who are in relationships who will probably be buying chocolates and roses for each other and sitting in restaurants this evening.
5: Yeah, I suppose with Valentine's Day happening, it's really a key time to kind of reflect on your own relationship um, and how how you're being treated. So... At this time of year, you know, we see grand gestures of love and affection, but we know um, that, I suppose, abuse can hide beneath the surface of Mm. romantic relationships and gestures. So, for example, love bombing is a big red flag for abuse. So that's where your partner will bombard you with love and affection and presence and, you know, um, constant text messages, things like that, which can feel really normal and exciting at the start of a relationship. But if you feel like you can't say no or you owe them something in return, then this would be a real red flag that, a, a, a you know, a barrier has been crossed. Because what that says is your partner doesn't respect your boundaries. They don't respect your decisions and your need for space and independence.
3: Mm. I still find it very hard to believe that so many young people are in s- such unhealthy relationships, love, affection, abuse. Uh, and emotional blackmail I I mean that's what it is if we all fight we all say things when we have a a fight but if you're threatening to post intimate images of people online I mean that's uh, illegal I think you said.
5: It is illegal under Coco's law and so it's not just illegal to actually share those intimate images or videos to threaten to share those intimate images or videos is now a crime also
2: hmm. because
5: what that is is its course of control. It says if you don't act in this way, if you don't um, do what I say, I will basically subject you to image-based sexual abuse because okay. that's what the sharing of those intimate but what, images is. What, what does
3: it say to us if, if uh, that's the experience of 93% of your respondents?
5: Well, I mean, we really need to be looking at, you know, what young people are learning about relationships. Are they learning about what's healthy and unhealthy? Um, you know, what are they learning in school? And we're hoping, I suppose, with the new um, curricula that we will see those those changes and a gender-based um, lens on, you know, what young people are learning. Because unfortunately, it is majority young women who are being subjected to abuse by
3: male partners. What are they learning? Uh, because another shocking statistic is this issue of assault. 83% saying uh, that their partner has struck them at some stage and they're afraid they'll do it again. Uh, first of all, why has he hit her if that's the case? And second of all, why is she still in the relationship?
5: Well I suppose we need to be very careful when we talk about you know why people don't leave abusive relationships leaving an abusive relationship is never as simple as just breaking up because often after the breakup, the abuse can get much worse. Um, Things can, you know, um, be hiked up. Sure. Um, And I don't want to simplify
3: it, but I mean, it's very hard to accept that 83% of young girls, let's say, are in that situation.
5: Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, we need to look at the... um, The the teachings that young people are getting around, you know, what it means to be a young woman, what Mm. it means to be a young man. I hate to say his name, but Andrew Tate has had a huge influence on young men, you know, who feel um, disenfranchised and feel like feminism is against them. And it's telling them that they have this entitlement to power and control in their relationships. And really, it's setting them up for failure because it's not doing them it's not doing them any fail, uh, or any favours and it's really setting an unrealistic expectation
3: okay who is that sorry I, I, is that one of those um, influencers uh, on social media uh, who, who yeah, yeah sorry no, so Andrew
5: yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he um, basically is an influencer and right. his messaging is really that women have or men have an entitlement to power and control over women he believes that men own their partner and that they are objects
3: basically. Uh, and well, young fellows are, are are watching this and buying into it, or is it uh, boys and Absolutely girls who are? are is are, are the girls believing this as well? Or no,
5: it's 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 predominantly young men that is his target audience. Yeah. So it is really scary, and I suppose that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, he is the loudest voice there. Right. Um. So yeah, we need to be teaching young boys. You know what it means to be a young man. You know, we believe that to be a good man is to stand up against sexism, against violence in all aspects of yeah. life. And I suppose that's what we're hoping to do with the Two into you campaign, is to really shine a light on, you know, what a healthy relationship yeah. should be. Not just the red flags, but, you know, how you can have a healthy relationship. And I suppose to say that everyone deserves that. Because, I, you know, especially on Valentine's Day, mm. unfortunately, you know, there will be people who are experiencing abuse today and, you know, being subjected to emotional manipulation with gifts and things like that yeah. but it is better to be single than to be in an abusive relationship because even if it seems like little small things now they will get worse and worse and worse
3: Right um, I, I, I can't believe uh, that people young people are, are watching that and thinking yeah he has a point and um, Uh, Would that not be uh, illegal in mainstream media? I mean it's one thing I suppose I'm saying it on the internet and that's where young people get all of their information uh, and I obviously don't fall into that category of young people and never heard of this fella but uh, I would imagine that uh, you can't go uh, uh, on on radio or in print media or anything like that or television and uh, proclaim that if you have a girlfriend she's your property.
5: Yeah, well look, I mean, the, the um, online laws are, are murky at best, um, but really, you know, if parents can can talk to their children about, you know, what the representations they're seeing in the media mean, um, I think it will go away to, to being helpful. Um, and actually on our uh, website, uh, 2 and 2 i e, so that's Women's Aid's uh, specific website for young people, we have mm-hmm. an online safety guide. So, you know, it's really about learning how to keep yourself safe online because unfortunately there are negative uh, messages out there, but we want young people to feel empowered online and feel protected online.
3: Okay. Uh, Tell me about uh, the necklaces or some of the other concerns you have uh, about gifts that might be given to girls that could be used to track their movements.
5: Yeah, so um, we're actually running a pop-up shop in uh, Henry Street today in Dublin um, and the idea is it's a Valentine's shop and we want to disrupt people's idea of what romance looks like so you know romantic gestures can really hide abuse under the surface so for example we have a locket and in the locket there is a GPS tracker and that's linked to a phone so unfortunately this would be quite common you know partners tracking their movements maybe monitoring their online um, activity, logging into their social media to see who they've been talking to. And really, um, you know, this is a reflection of the research that we've done with young Mm. people. So of that one in five young women who've been abused, um, nine in 10 had been subjected to, or one in two, apologies, Mm. one in two had been subjected to online abuse. And really with online abuse, it can be incredibly draining because there feels like there's no escape from it. So you could be at home, you know, in your room, not even living with a partner, but that online space allows them to maintain that power and control over your conversations, over your choices, over, you know, what you do um, both online and in person.
3: It's a bit like uh, those things that they release prisoners uh, on license with, isn't it? These tracking devices.
5: Yeah, I mean, um, often they're marketed as parenting devices uh, um, or even for pets. So unfortunately, they're very easy to come by. Right.
3: Uh, I'm flabbergasted. Never heard of anything like it. Uh, or or, I can't imagine why um, anybody would want to do that with somebody that they're supposedly romantically involved with. Uh, It's a distortion, isn't it? It's a a distortion of thinking, distorted way of looking at at what uh, a positive, healthy relationship should be like.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, I suppose often it can be brushed off as, oh, you know, they're insecure or, um, you know, People will link it to mental illness or narcissism, but actually, you know, it is normal people who are unfortunately subjecting their partners to abuse, and it is normal, you know, people, normal women who who are being subjected to abuse. Mm. And you know, no matter how empowered you are, unfortunately, this this can happen to you. So, really, with the campaign, we're trying to raise awareness of the red flags of abuse so that people can spot them early on. Because unfortunately, the longer you're in a relationship, the more serious it gets, the more you brush off those, you know, those red flags, um, the harder it can be to leave. Because when you're in an abusive relationship, it can be very difficult to see the wood for the trees. It happens so slowly that you know what your partner is doing to you becomes the norm Mm. you lower your expectations and all of the things that were small red flags that have become bigger red flags and become even more dangerous The worst part of
3: it all is that uh, from what you're saying it's kind of kind of is the norm isn't it Uh, I mean if so many people are reporting it
5: absolutely I mean you know that's a reflection if people are going to the website to do the quiz There's obviously something wrong there. So we always say, you know, if something feels wrong, it probably is. So I would encourage people to visit 2ntu.ie and to take the relationship quiz to see if their relationship is healthy or unhealthy. Um, And if it's, you know, more on the unhealthy side, there's more information there on what you can do. We have a chat service that's completely free and confidential. And people can also talk to the Women's Aid team on the uh, free phone helpline as well.
3: Okay, 2IntoYou.ie, the relationship quiz. Thank you very much, Mary, for joining us on the programme. Mary Hayes is the 2IntoYou project lead with Women's Aid.
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM
3: now, as you heard yesterday the Irish Independent has been looking at uh, the Guard of Force and has found that 133 Guard Stations have seen a drop in manpower. This is over the course of the last year and that 100 pardon, 133 stations is out of a total of 560 Guard Stations around the country. Let's speak to Paul Williams, special correspondent with the Irish Independent who's been writing about this. And a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. Uh, I take it uh, this comes as no great surprise to you.
6: Hiya, Michael. It certainly doesn't. And, well, the important point about this uh, analysis that Sean McCarthy did for the Irish Independent is that it confirms that there is an underlying downward trend uh, in Garda numbers, and that it is the kind of downward trend that is very, very concerning, and which clearly has Garda headquarters in a bit of a because they've put their heads into the sand, as usual, because... Um, and this has been compared, I've compared it, um, to what happened in the defence forces. At the moment, you're talking about, you know, in, in the guardish economy they're talking about a problem with recruitment on one side. They're not making the recruitment quotas anymore, uh, and retention on the other side, which is basically, there is a very noticeable and very concerning um, trend of officers reaching up to 20 years when they can get their basic pension and leaving. People, a new phenomenon of people who've joined the Guards and are in five or six or seven years and are leaving um, because they, they're fed up with the whole thing. Um and that is very, very worrying. Mm. It first surfaced in the defence forces in around 2015 or 16, and it started in exactly the same way. And now today, the defence forces is in the midst of a of a, a crisis that is so bad that our brilliant defence forces are basically no uh, not fit for purpose. Now, if the continuing if, the, if that trend continues within our guardia catana, then we are in big, big trouble. And the people who suffer over all of this, Michael are the people listening to your show. The people who reached out and were delighted to have a really strong local guard force there in Drogheda to take on the killers of the... uh, uh, You know, that young Mm man really Woods lad. Uh, and 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 the gangland violence that gripped that wonderful community up in Drogheda, a very peaceful, beautiful town. But it was... You need a strong police force to do that. What we're seeing here, this is Im- emblematic of the fact that morale is completely on the floor. Yeah. That there is a disillusionment uh, to such an extent that people are taking and walking out. And that was never, ever heard mm. before in the
7: history
3: uh, of the guard I, I read your article, yes, and uh, you were <coughs> speaking with some members of uh, the force. Uh, and uh, I suppose when you think about what garda you have to uh, endure, you'd ask yourself who in their right mind would want to be a, a garda? And it is a tough job and that's highlighted in uh, what they were saying to you. But it, it's not just what they're dealing with uh, on the streets. Uh, it's also the complaint, oh. the complaints that uh, are made against them. And I get the impression from reading your article that they're guilty until proven innocent. Absolutely. and That's become a major
6: problem. This is, by the way, <clears throat> the, the person who, does, who seems to be uh, beyond question Beyond, uh, who's basically beyond and uh, not available to answer any questions about this, who is responsible for the running of a Garda Sheet call of the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, we never hear a word from him. Uh, and nobody has po- pointed the finger and said, well, hang on a minute, what is he doing about this? And this level, like, there was a guy uh, interviewed recently, a former uh, inspector, Tony Gallagher, from the north inner city, very well-respected police officer. So a guy who did his duty and worked all his life in, on the coal front, at the, the coal face, and he's talking about how now when guards go out to do a job, like, and there's a really violent and crazy situation going on in the streets, and the guard before they go in, they have to look. They're looking over the shoulder as much. They're between Drew Harris's and managerial levels, and on one side, and a violent uh, cohort of people in the public on the other. And what they have to ask themselves is, what will happen if I do take action? What I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. Mm. What that does is engenders a sort of a, a, a lethargy whereby they're going to just do absolutely nothing. And this has been happening. And like the level of uh, disciplinary oversight, guards are terrified to talk to the You know, there's much flaunt of, basically, if you don't mind me using the word bullshit that we hear from Drew Harris and his management. I know other journalists will say that to you, they're all afraid some reason. But they come in with all this managerial nonsense. And the point is that the people on the ground are terrified, a guard is terrified to take action. The mm. cover your arse mentality takes over and they've learned that obviously from the management. So our guardy, if this trend continues Michael, we're heading for a really yeah. bad place. Are smart
3: smartphones part of that problem? Because you see fellas sticking phones in, in, in the faces of guardy all the time and uh, I take it that they're using that to make complaints and uh, mm. that uh, guard, Tony Gallagher was uh, talking to you, I think about the fear that some guards have. Uh, if, if that happens uh, and they end up being suspended without getting a chance to clear their name
6: yeah if like the, there is another dimension to this in terms of uh, policing practice in ireland um and it is that when they're facing this constant abuse and constant threats from people that there's a there is an unconsciousness amongst us they're mostly amongst people who have something to hide or who are not particularly law-abiding because the target people show a bit of respect to the guards but they feel that the Guards have no authority anymore. If we just slam this in our face and we start threatening them, and we tell them we are going to report them, they'll back off. And that is what's happening. So what does the Guard do then? The, the easiest um, piece of, a bit of work the Guards can then do is to police the law-abiding citizens as in the traffic departments, for example, it's easier to do people for speeding and for penalty points and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and, and, and people parking in double yellow lines, rather than going into a, a, a really rough area of a town or a city and taking on bad people who are quite prepared to tell any kind of lies they can to undermine the cars. So, like that's the question we posed in that piece in the independent yesterday, Michael, was why? who would actually be doing this job? What's yeah. the point of like it? The I said recently that, you know, Two hundred eighty-five serious assaults on Gardy in two thousand and twenty-two. That's an increase of twenty percent compared to twenty twenty-one. And at the same time, you have you have Drew Harris, who has been talking very publicly and talking that he's going to root out corruption in the force. I think what we have done here is we the Gardaí economy will compare it to a, an old building. It has been there for a hundred years. Now it does it does require it has required extensive refurbishment. So when you sent the contractors in on this particular project what they decided to do was rather than keep the, the very positive aspects of the building that existed there just left the whole bloody thing and rebuilt this other uh, edifice and it's basically the term you know that we use is throwing the baby under the bathwater <clears throat> so we have over-collected the garden and now they've turned into well, we're turning into another branch of her majesty's constabulary another another uh, force but you couldn't, it, is yeah. indistinguishable. And the police in Britain, Michael, are not very successful. They're way, way behind the Gavi Sigana. Here's another thing the, the, the elephant in the room here, yeah. which a lot of Gavi listeners will, 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 will agree with. We have seen an influx of officers from the PSNI. There seems to be a prejudice towards the PSNI uh, to, as, to, to get officers in, like superintendents or whatever and assistant commissioners, and bring them into Angardish Corner over the heads of the people who have been in Angardish Corner all their lives. Now, the point of the matter is the Garda have been told by government, the message to them is, listen, we don't consider any uh, Irish member of Angardish Garda if you want a better description, uh, you're never going to make it to the top job because you're just not good enough. Because remember, the Garda commissioner we have today is from the PSNI, who worked very closely with the English police and the MI5 and people like that is all on record. But his, his two deputies, one of his deputies was brought from Canada to run on garda Economy, which is also the state's national security agency. And <clears throat> if you're a cop who's been in 20 years and really interested in your job, mm. um, you're going to turn around afterwards and say, there's no point to this anymore. Okay. They don't care about us. They don't want us. You just feel very, they feel very let down. They feel very disillusioned, and to use the term morale is on the floor, uh, in 30 years of covering the guards, I never thought, Michael, that I would see the words uh, that re- recruitment and retention would become a problem in our guard of Chicago. It was absolutely, obviously, it was always, yeah, okay. always, Quite the
3: opposite. It's a very disturbing picture you paint, Paul. You. I have to leave it there, though. Thank you indeed for you joining are, us Michael. as always. Thank you very much. Paul Williams, special correspondent with uh, the Irish Independent.
0: Michael, Michael Reid on We're
3: going to talk about nursing home charges and if these charges should be passed on to people. It was described as a scandal with elderly people being ripped off last week by local Sinn Féin TD, Melda Munster, who was speaking at the Public Accounts Committee about the most vulnerable namely people in nursing homes elderly people in private homes who are entitled to to a medical card and who are being charged for items that would be ordinarily free of charge that is if they weren't in a nursing home and they were in the community they're talking about things like wound dressings ointment creams, physiotherapy, speech and language therapy and other basic entitlements, as she put it. She put a freedom of information question in to the department and got a a response uh, which showed that the assistant national director for primary care was saying that there should be a clause in contracts with nursing homes that the HSC should implement to stop these type of charges. We'll pick up on the conversation at the committee from there.
8: I've just said that when either patients in nursing homes complain or a family member complains, they're told you can take your mother or father elsewhere. Now, the suggestion by the, the Assistant National Director had suggested that a clause be put in the document in the contract. Now, why why the reluctance to that? Why the reluctance to do something concrete that would afford the most vulnerable protection? That's my question. Don't answer. come with, or putting answer, in regulation that puts it back on the elderly mother or father in a nursing home that's told, and even their, their, pair, their children are told, Take them out if you don't like it.
9: Okay. Why isn't there a clause in the contract? Why Because this why has it not been done? In fairness, the Deputy and some others on the Committee have raised this consistently and I'm open to correction on this, Deputy, but I think we actually had this in one of our reports mm. uh, in relation to our engagements mm. with the HSC. It's an ongoing well, scandal that if, could be solved. It was then, recommended it? by the National Director. Why at this point, you know, and this, you, you've been at this for two years, why at this point is it not in the contract?
8: We'll have to take because that away, the because Book we are the doing
7: it. It two years ago, but
9: okay. you're take it away. I mean, Chair, I, for we will goodness sake. come I, back to you. Yes, you but can you come back to us and give absolutely. us a clear answer yeah. as to why it's not in it and when it will be in it? I'm told, by the way, and I'll just share this with the committee, that it's impossible to police it as it stands the contract. That's what I'm told. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm told that by by uh, by an official. It's impossible to police it, Okay. So, in fairness to the deputy and to the members of the committee, you know we have looked for this before. If you can come back with a clear answer as to why it has to happen and what progress, when when we can expect to see this in the contract? So, as I,
8: as I understand,
9: the chair, this is the contract between the, the the family
6: and the private nursing home.
8: No, it's under the, the no, it's contract, under the Fair the Deal house. scheme. It's the conditional so contract between the HSE and, and the service and provider. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we should a, be in yeah. that.
9: Yeah. So no we made it very way. clear, Chair, that this should not happen. We've, we've, oh, we've said this consistently. we we'll come back I, and see what I is I there some... That's that yes. accepted, Mr. Ward. If your, if your the Assistant National is, so Director as recommended
8: General. this and said that that was the only yeah, way I'd that they could we'll see, why hasn't it been done?
9: It might be that they can't retrospectively change. I don't know. We'll check
3: I don't know, he said. It did seem that the Department of Health officials were kind of lost at sea. We were hearing there from Sinn Féin's Melden Munster, who was putting those questions to the officials. We also heard from the Chair of the Committee, who is Brian Stanley another Sinn Féin TD. Siobhan McArdle is Assistant Secretary in the Department of Health.
7: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about Work.
3: We're also hearing from the Secretary General in the Department of Health, Robert Watt, uh, who you heard there at the end say, I I don't know, was confused about who the contract was between, uh, and indeed said he'd get clarity on it and come back to the committee. Let's speak now to Maureen Finlay, who's regional coordinator for Meath and Louth, with Sage Advocacy. And a very good morning to you, Maureen, and thank you indeed for joining us on on the programme. I know that Sage Advocacy is very concerned uh, about some of these charges, the debt that it puts some people in, uh, and uh, leaves them in a a very difficult uh, position. You want all of this looked into what, what do you make of what you've just been hearing
6: do,
10: Michael. it's possible if you would just give me a few minutes to explain to your listeners what's involved in all of this and why it's happening so i will try to be as brief as i can but if you could just afford me a little few minutes then that'd be great hmm. so we start off by saying dozens of complaints have come into HICWA, the competition and consumer protection commission and sage advocacy who represent older people in care Issues and concerns are taken from our case files right across the entire country, and some are quite difficult to comprehend that are ha- actually happening. So to try and understand the situations and how they arise, we need to understand what the nursing home support scheme or this famous fair deal is all about. And um, so the fair deal scheme is, as my opinion, very unfair. So I'll give you an example. An older person entering fair deal, if their old age pension is the only source of income, then the cost of their care is 80% of their weekly pension. That leaves very little left over to fund any additional expenses they will have, like hair dressing, chiropathy, physio, activities, clothes, treats, newspapers, anything they need in ordinary living, daily living. The fact that they do not have a choice of a HSE nursing home, where most of these services are covered with the exception of probably hairdressing, they have to go to a private nursing home. And remember, 80% of nursing homes at the moment are privately owned. And these services are additional costs to their 80% of the fair deal. Now it appears to me that this is not explained to them or their family at the time, and and in a lot of cases only come to light when monthly invoices are presented for payment. Mm. The big problem is that the contract of care are requested to be signed off very quickly and the person or the family member at the time when they're asked to sign off on this contract may be quite confused and all the rest of it and they don't get a chance to look at it very carefully. So we always say, please do not be in any rush to sign the contract of care. Get advice if you need. Find out what exactly you're going to have to pay because if you're going to a private nursing home, you have no choice but to pay these additional costs of care. So these unfair um, charges should not be happening and are purely symptoms of the state underfunding and in some cases care profiteering, I have to say. What needs to be addressed is proper funding of care in nursing home relevant to the level of residents' needs. And as people are now living longer at home and entering nursing home care when their needs are far greater, this causes additional funding requirements and this does not seem to be covered or understood by the fair deal system. I have to say that Sejad, because he has been very proactive in this all along, and we set out a pathway on what needed to be done and how it should be achieved in a report published in 2020 called Choice Matters. A commission of care for the people was promised in the current Programme for Government. There's no sign of it as yet, and there's two years left to implement this. Mm. So we are calling on the Minister of State for the people, Mary Butler, to please get this work underway. as a matter of great urgency. We do acknowledge that she does um, respond very well to any matters that are brought before, and we thank okay. her for that. Well, the
3: Programme for Government promises to bring about a, a, an end uh, to these charges. As we've been hearing, yes. the HSE Assistant National Director for Primary Care Reimbursement Services has has said that a clause should be inserted in the contracts that the HSE has with nursing homes to make sure that people who have medical cards are not charged for services that they would receive free of charge or under the medical card scheme in, in the community.
10: Absolutely. Were you
3: surprised? Were you, su- were you surprised to hear the top official in the Department of Health uh, speaking there, uh, unaware of this situation?
10: Well, I find that quite, um, you know, difficult to understand because we're finding this on the ground all the time as a service provider for older people and listening to everything that's happening every day of the week. So I would just like to say this, that I'm the regional coordinator for County Mead and County Loud where I cover nursing homes, hospital and community. And I see every day at first hand the escalating needs of older people to have their choices of care taken on board. And I appreciate the difficulties of service providers to meet those ever-increasing demands. This is a problem that has to be addressed and not kicked down further down the road. And in fairness to my area in the North I have found that the vast majority of nursing homes are always willing to engage when an issue arises. And in the majority of cases, the resolution in the best interest of our clients was sorted out mistakes can be made through that of communication and that's one of the biggest problems Mm, at the time the older person enters nursing home care be that the contract issues additional charges unpaid bills growing level of debt agreed payments not being implemented by family and family conflict and much more issues like that and they're being highlighted on a daily basis and one of the biggest issues I have as well as not getting these services through a medical card is that if a patient is in hospital and they have an appointment in the hospital and if there's no family member there Mm. to take them to the hospital then the nursing home has to pay a carer and has to pay yep. the transport for this.
3: And, and that of course, has to it's be
10: not paid a, by somebody. It's
3: not a new issue either, Maureen. Um yes. we're going to have to leave it there. We've run over time, but thank you I- indeed uh, for joining us all on the program today. That's Maureen Finley, who's uh, the regional coordinator for Counties Meath and Louth with Sage Advocacy. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, Aime was in touch with us about. The two into you survey or quiz, uh, which I found unbelievable. Uh, but he says it's not only women who suffer from abuse in relationships, and we know that's true, unfortunately, Eamon. Uh, it's terrible that anybody would uh, suffer abuse in any relationship, uh, but uh, I think it is the majority. Uh, of cases uh, that relate to women. Anne says why would young people give each other these images? Have they no cop on? And she says, I also thought that there was a law against posting these kind of images. well, as we heard, Anne, there's a law against threatening to post these kind of images. And there certainly is a law against posting them. Uh, Frank says uh, a lot of people in touch about the guards, uh, along with other reasons. One reason there are very few people joining the guards is because of a culture within the force which was never dealt with. And he says that there's a lot of bullying going in, on in on Garda Shiakana. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Frank. Uh, we'd John, who says he's not a guard, but says Paul Williams, our most respected and best crime reporter in, in the state, is telling it as it is, with no agenda, or only good intentions. Thanks for that, John. Uh, we'd uh, another text uh, then from John, uh, and different John that is, uh, who says uh, he would be a guard, uh, except for the uniform Uh, he doesn't think that they look very serious anymore I'm not sure if that was tongue in cheek but thank you indeed if you've been in touch if you've not been in touch and you'd like to make comment on our programme our telephone number is 041 983 2000 text or whatsapp 086 1800 658 email michael at lmfm.ie
0: Michael
3: Reed, Reed on LMFM Now to a very sexually explicit and most disturbing story and one certainly not for young ears of uh, a couple, uh, mother and her partner uh, who are to be sentenced uh, for the rape and abuse of her five year old daughter and her three and a half year old son. Uh, the issue came to light uh, when the girl was with foster parents who became concerned because as a six-year-old, when she first arrived to them, she approached her foster father and tried to undo the belt of his trousers. After that, the girl disclosed what the foster parents described as the most unimaginable abuse to them. Uh, She, this five-year-old girl, a guard told the court yesterday, was called into the bedroom by her mother uh, in order to perform oral sex on the woman's partner. At the same time, then, she was also sexually assaulted by her mother and made touch her mother's private area, the Garda said. Uh, The girl also recalled being tied to a chair while her mother and the man went to the pub. When asked by Gardee how she was tied to the chair, she said that glue had been involved. The children's 40-year-old mother and 52-year-old partner stood trial last year, having denied a number of offences, including rape, oral rape, sexual assault, sexual exploitation, reckless endangerment and false imprisonment of the children at two locations in Connect on dates between October 2012 and September 2014. The impact on these children was just absolutely devastating. Uh, when the little girl uh, arrived in foster care, her parents, foster parents, that is, say, she had no control over her bladder or, or her bowel, and she'd often soiled herself. Uh, she'd also find, the mother would also find the child playing in her bedroom in the middle of the night because the little girl couldn't sleep. She behaved more like a three-year-old than a six-year-old. The boy couldn't walk or talk properly, uh, and he went to the Toilet, seemingly wherever he was, he'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming from night terrors. At one stage, he smeared feces over his bedroom wall. Uh, They're both said to be doing a lot better now, they're aged 15 and 12. Uh, The sentencing of the mother and the partner uh, will uh, be held in March. Let's speak to Nolene Blackwell, the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And a very good morning to Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on the program. It's beyond anyone's comprehension how people could treat children so badly, dreadful, dreadful abuse at the extreme end of extreme abuse, obviously.
1: That's right. I... I I think that is right. We have to remember that, that it is at the extreme end, including um, putting the children through the trial of about six weeks in this particular case showing no understanding by the two people involved or no no indication that they are taking any blame. I think we have to be kind of careful because we still have a sentencing hearing to come up next month as you say. A couple of things though that I just, uh, I know you will give out the helpline number at at the end of this call, but I might just say it again because it is a very distressing case when you hear of this kind of cruelty towards young children, which, while it is unusual, is not unique. Um, an awful lot of most uh, children who are sexually abused are abused by someone they know, um, and very often, and, and sometimes by parents, actually, about a quarter could be twenty to twenty five percent could be by a parent, another fifty percent are by somebody the child knows. So the, the idea that we have of the safe home and, um, and 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 children not suffering abuse there is is not true for all children. And the number is one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. There is a lot of help available out there. But as well the other thing that struck me, Michael Art of this was how lucky we are in this country. To have people who will be caring foster parents. Like it's a job uh, for which you would you, you, couldn't, you couldn't pay people properly and indeed they're not uh, paid properly mm-hmm. along the way but people are fantastic who will take on the job of caring and loving uh, for children who are um, who, who, need, who need the care of the state when their own homes are not safe people and for all we give out about Tufla a lot I think it's important to remember uh, that that child and family agency as well is, takes part in the care of some of our most um, uh, vulnerable and at risk children one
3: eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight your helpline number again, and we will repeat it one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight because stories like this uh, do tend to have a, an impact uh, on people uh, who've been subjected to uh, abuse in the past, and uh, it can stir old motions uh, which were perhaps dormant and they may wish to call and talk to you Uh, but what about the impact Uh, I I mean is that the same thing uh, that those emotions may be there and dormant or otherwise but the impact that uh, we heard there that it, it had on these children obviously huge psychological impact on them
1: yeah, that, that was actually what struck me as well in terms of the reporting of this, that you saw for once the, um, the immediate and the long-term impact on children that, you know, there is, I don't know, is it that people think that that children still don't have any memories, don't have any feeling that these things can't harm them. Um, there's something about that but this, this is a very graphic case and it's one of the things that I'm really conscious of because we cannot see the impact of sexual abuse in the same way we can see the impact of physical abuse. We cannot measure it and very often the person who suffers it cannot describe it either or talk about it because it has actually impacted their their capacity to speak about it even if the rest of us had the had the understanding to listen and very often we don't. So so one of the things that you find in studies is for instance that abuse one of the one of the facilitators of abuse is where uh, there's another abuser where, you know, where, where people tolerate the abuse or turn their head away from it. And one of the things that helps stop abuse is where we develop our professional and our personal capacities to look out for uh, for for ways in which children may be trying to tell us something that we don't really want to listen to or we don't think they're the kind of kids who need the same sort of attention as other kids. So I'm not saying that was the case in this, of course, I don't know, but I do think that this is important to show that when children are abused physically, sexually, emotionally, emotionally, and particularly where they, where it can 't be seen, then there can be massive damage to the wiring of their brains which are still developing when you think about it children and young people their brains are still developing into their 20s um, and 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 so therefore it is it's extraordinarily important that we understand that abuse that the actual assault of Young children or older children or anyone, like it has, it, it, it can, it, it changes them for life Mm -hmm. and it can handicap them, to use that word, in, in a way which could be long term. So it's just, it may, it means that the abuse of children and young people is rightly taken very seriously by our state at the formal level in terms of uh, criminal charges um, uh, and the rest of it. But, But I just think maybe as a society too, we just need to be that bit more careful, more understanding, more able to hear children when they talk and when the impact and when they can... Articulate in some way the impact Man, of the abuse, and we, we need our, to look out for it better uh, as a society. Articulating
3: it, I think, uh, is probably the problem for children so young to find the words. Just to remind sure. people, your number is one eight hundred seventy-seven eighty-eight eighty-eight, and we will repeat that a- a- again in a moment. But uh, these two children were very, very young. I, I take it that. Ages uh, of these children at five and three and a half uh, is exceptionally rare. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think that's demonstrated in the language that they used when the foster mothers discovered that there was something wrong uh, and started to investigate. And they're talking about privates and uh, the language of children to uh, explain what happened to them. And the foster mothers really do have to be uh, applauded for the way they acted and reported this.
1: Uh, and 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 the foster uh, foster fathers in this care as well. It looks like that they um, that they were they were terrible. I think it was even a first placement uh, for this foster family. Um, like it is just like you have to admire it and and that they and that they spotted it and were and hopefully had the kind of support that they needed from social services as well. And um, that articulation that ex- explanation of it can come in so many ways because even adults who can contact off on the helpline, Michael, can really find it very, very difficult to speak, to name things that they shouldn't ever have to name and that they know impact on their innermost selves. And that's why the helpline is now associated with a web chat as well. You know, people, if it's easier for them to put something into a web chat, uh, we're extending our web chat all the time, but that is a possibility for people as well. I suppose it it's it, it is. This is a very, very, very difficult case. Um, it is a case that went to court and that we would probably have heard less if there hadn't been a full trial along the way. Mm. But it is not unique. It is not something we can ever sort of say we don't have to guard against. And we have to look out. It is, it is a, it's a way of behaving, at an abuse of power, of the most vulnerable mm. in a, in a family of of the the babies of the little ones, it's not unique, and um, it can happen. It does happen. It must never be overlooked or tolerated. And it is everyone's job to look outward. But I suppose particularly this will fall to social workers, to health workers. Uh, to various uh, other people but uh, on some occasions uh, it is going to, ta- it's going to take the, the criminal law uh, to bring this to a stop and I think part of the report as well is from one of the victims where he says he's glad that you know that, that it has come to trial so that other people aren't hurt by it as well yeah. and you just kind of think like the humanity of that as well uh, in a kid who's entitled to just concentrate on themselves and as I, well.
3: I think that- it is quite often the fear of uh, abuse victims uh, that the perpetrator doesn't carry out that abuse on somebody else Uh, just read uh, another part of uh, the court report uh, of it says that the boy is now in his first year of secondary school and he's doing very well I think our listeners will be happy to hear that obviously don't forget he was three and a half years old at the time Uh, and he told his foster mother that he's glad his mother and the man are in prison so they can can't do the same to any other children and he hopes they stay there. He tells his foster family that they saved his life. His foster mother described the boy as a very well-mannered young man and she said they're very proud of him. Uh, The little girl uh, who was five years of age at the time of uh, the abuse uh, eventually moved to another foster home when she was a young teenager and That foster mother said in her victim impact statement that the girl behaves younger than her years, describing her as dancing wildly in her bedroom, oblivious to her surroundings, which she suspected was a method that the girl uses to regulate her emotions. The girl tells her that dancing like this helps to take away the pain from the top of my head. The foster mother said the teenager often seems lost in her own thoughts and seeks solace and comfort in her bedroom. Though she struggles with sleep, and that the girl found it very difficult during the trial to watch the video of herself as a young girl speaking yeah. to specialist Gardy, as she had to relive what happened to her through the trial.
1: Mm. Yeah, again, you're just you're just looking and saying it's. Um, again, we have to remember that the sentencing has to happen, and that yeah. they might yeah. may very well even appeal um, the 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 conviction. Who, but. Um, uh, it's just like in terms of the impact again it's it it reminds us there there was no visible evidence of this there was nothing to show the harm and the hurt that was done and um, you have to we have to watch out for each other and we particularly have to watch out for each other where there are vulnerable people by reason of age and that could be young age it could be old age but certainly again and again I I suppose you know we probably Some people probably get sick of us saying it, but there is a power dynamic going on here. There is somebody who is more powerful than somebody else who has control and authority over somebody else, and they're abusing that power and authority. And when they do that, they are inflicting harm and damage on the person they abuse, and that harm and damage can can be worked on, can be healed just to remind everybody if people get help, if they get the support that they need, if they get the therapy that they need, it can be. But the damage is real. It is not a fiction. It is not something that people can say, kids forget these things, that's not the reality uh, and that's not the experience of anyone who has had contact with uh, vulnerable children who've been damaged in this way.
3: Well said, Nolene Blackwell. That's a message to you from Margaret. Uh, She says, well said uh, for the way you described what sexual abuse does to a child. Uh, and you might want to respond to the next part of our message, uh, Nolene. Margaret says, the sad thing is that the adult never forgets it. He or she keeps blaming the child that they once were. It's just one of those things. It, it robs you of your education, self-belief in yourself. And even if you do achieve something in life, you still never forget it.
1: You 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 never forget it because if it was a physical thing and you, you know, you, you, Broke your back or something like that. Even if it recovered, you would always have to be careful around it. You have to live around it, of course. Uh, who? You, you, but you. But you can. You can work around it. It is never the best way, to for a child to have to come to adulthood. Um. Uh, but just to remember that you can work around it. You can heal. You can manage. Mm. You know. It's. It's. It's a pity that anyone would have to put that burden on themselves of having to heal, of having to manage, but mm. it is possible. And we see it a lot of the time that people manage, they cope, and they, it, it doesn't take away the sadness, yeah. I think yeah. is what I would say yeah. on yeah.
3: that and may, one as well. May, may, may um, and actually.
1: I'm sorry for yeah. Margaret, but you know, yeah. it, it yeah. is a sadness um, if yeah. she knows of, of that.
3: OK, and uh, maybe the first step towards healing is in making a, a phone call. Your helpline is one 800 77 thank you very much as always, always appreciated. it. Now, Blackwell is the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre Michael,
0: Michael Reed on LMFM. on LMFM Now
3: your car must have a valid NCT cert by law you'll get penalty points fined and could even end up in prison if you don't have a valid NCT cert, of course you have to have the test done to get their certificate. And if you don't have one, well, you're one of 375,000 cars on Irish roads because of a huge backlog that don't have a valid NCT. Now, the company behind all of this, Aplus, had a plan to reduce the waiting times. They wanted to recruit a new category of worker, which the Irish Independent says today would have carried out less skilled early stages of the testing using specialized machinery and equipment and that the final stages that involve checking the underbody of vehicles would still have to be conducted by fully qualified mechanics. The SIP2 Trade Union members who work at the NCT centres for Apple Plus have uh, rejected uh, this proposal and uh, the Irish Independent is saying that means that uh, the idea of cutting these backlogs lies in tatters. Let's speak to Sinn Féin TD for me, the East and the Sinn Féin spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke. A very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme today. What do you make of this?
2: Well, it, it doesn't come as a, a surprise, Michael. In fact, uh, we were aware of, of, of this news uh, when APLUS attended for the Transport Committee a, a couple of weeks ago and, and raised it specifically with them. I think there's a couple of, of important points to, to make. First of all, Um, this measure in and of itself would not have addressed the backlog. It was to be a pilot measure introduced in a number of sites in Dublin, um, essentially a new approach to the the NCT NCT test. Um, So so the suggestion that um, this was the be-all and end-all in terms of addressing the backlog, it was never going to be that anyway. So, So... um, so that's an important point to note. I think the, 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 the thing it really says to us, though, is that this is a company now, Aplos, who has a, a private monopoly for the NCT service in, in Ireland. Um, and it seems very clearly that it's a, a business that's struggling to manage its affairs and to deliver on its, its obligations. Um, Uh, I would have heard uh, privately from uh, NCT workers. Uh, I've engaged with unions over an extended period. Um, And you really get a sense of a a, a company um, that is, uh, you know, there are are clear problems there. Um, The workers have been to the Labour Court with pay claims in the past. You've heard the last time I was on your show that... um, they, they got the a, ten, a, ten, yeah. a ten euro voucher mm-hmm. for the for the Christmas party, and mm-hmm. um, there's been changes in terms of overtime. So, so that cultural piece within the organisation, and um, they're struggling to recruit, mm-hmm. they're struggling to retain. It should there be a
3: license to print money. I mean, we all have to do it, and everybody uh, is still getting their cars tested. Uh, it's just that they're waiting uh, on due uh, uh, amount of time uh, before they can get an appointment
2: absolutely and, and and on top of that, a point I raised the last time I was on with Michael as well for for those no shows which where, where people don 't turn up um, essentially are getting paid 150%. percent uh, they 're getting paid the the value of the test because they 've a replacement from from a, a local garage and they 're getting fifty percent of the the cancellation fee so so that's mm. a, an, you know the incentive mm-hmm. there really is to is, is to maximize those opportunities for them so this is a, a a profitable company it's signed an 800 million euro contract in 2019 it seems i think you know it's entirely understandable i would say that the workers rejected these proposals because the workers are saying to me well i've got the full responsibility but now i don't have have oversight and they're bringing and people in do you believe the sip
3: mechanics are, are, are correct in their opposition do you support them
2: I, I absolutely do. I absolutely do because I think the solution here is for this profitable company to live up to the commitments that it has made and that it's, it, 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 you know, is being very well remunerated for. It's about delivering terms and conditions of employment that attracts people and retains uh, good workers. And if they address that in the first instance, I think we ha- you have the basis of a solution. I know that uh, that the unions are engaging with management that there is a plan there and a commitment from workers if uh, if if management are up for it to address the backlog that doesn't involve a reduction in the terms and conditions and 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 also the, some of the legitimate questions i raised with the minister in relation to this proposal is what's the impact on the standard of the test what's the impact on the standard of the test if we're bringing in and completely changing the approach to the test Um, where's the the risk assessment, the oversight that that this is going to meet the standards that are set out not in Irish law but in European law Um, and and that's a a, a real concern that I raised with the Minister and didn't get a a satisfactory answer in relation to, I'm not surprised at all that the workers have opposed this this approach and I would call on management to engage with workers and look in the first instance at the terms and conditions of employment for those workers through them
3: well right and what, you'll about, get a good what, what, what about the terms and conditions of uh, the contract that Apples has with the state uh, is this backlog uh, in breach of the contract
2: it is yeah it absolutely is and and it's incredible to me that the RSA um, as as the the authority that APLIS are accountable to, uh, seem to be treating APLIS with with, with kid gloves. And I I have said to them, and and, uh, I would like the the Minister to intervene in relation to it, to ensure that APLIS are held to account uh, in relation to this. Because they've, as I said, a a generous contract... um, they're absolutely maximising their return on individual slots up to 3,000 slots a week that they are getting paid 150% for. Um, and uh, this unacceptable delay seems to be accepted. And, and I, I don't think that's, that's uh, uh, right or proper at all. There are provisions, as I understand it, within the contract uh, to hold this company to account. And uh, as I understand it from, from the RSA, um, they're engaging in that process, but it seems to be good on for an inordinate amount of time, and it's you know it's, it's yeah. it is completely unacceptable for for people uh, to be driving around in, in cars uh, and vehicles uh, 375,000 without an NCT mm. and well, left in a illegal limbo.
3: 375,000 uh, breaking the law, uh, not through any fault of their own, uh, and it just makes the law an ass.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and and if you, you know, as I said, this is a private monopoly. The state has designed these schemes. Um, it makes absolute sense that we have uh, a roadworthiness test. Um, it has a real impact on uh, the safety of vehicles on the road and has, I think, contributed to uh, reductions in fatalities and accidents. And, you know, there's, there's a reason we do the, these things. But if the system is not fit for purpose, well, then it needs to be uh, reviewed and, and improved. And it seems to be the case that, uh, particularly post-COVID, um, This company has just been allowed to to drift on and on without adequately addressing um, the, the, the backlog and the measures that they intend to take uh, themselves to address the backlog seem to be in my opinion a race to the bottom and uh, a profit making venture from 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 them and that's that's completely unacceptable it's completely the wrong approach as i say mm. they, they need to get their, their house in order yeah well i
3: take it less skilled workers are uh, lower paid workers for that matter
2: Absolutely, yeah, Uh, and and, and, you know that's that's the the case as as indicated, and uh, and I think in fairness to to the the dedicated workers that are delivering uh, more NCT tests then, despite the backlog, delivering more NCT tests last year than any year on, on, on record because of the the increased demand. So the, those dedicated workers that are delivering for this company, um, I think it, it, it tells a lot about this company that this is the approach that they're taking to, to address the backlog. Okay. They're seeing as, as an opportunity um, to to make more profits and to cut the terms and conditions of their employees. And any self-respecting worker in, in, in the world will, uh, will respond as, as the, 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 the workers in Apples did and, and the company need to take heed of
3: that. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Darren O'Rourke, Darren O'Rourke is a, a TD for me, the East and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport. Michael,
0: Michael Reed on, on
3: LMFM. FM. Time now as is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual there's a, a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station joins us for this Week's report, and thank you for doing so. We're going to begin with a number of burglaries uh, this week. The first of these at Fantasia in Bettystown.
11: Yes, good morning, Michael. So, on Tuesday morning, the 7th of February, between 2 30 and 3 am, Gardy responded to a call of Fantasia in Denor Business Park in Bettystown. They discovered the premises had been entered and damages caused within the building. Starting at Drahatagarda Station are seeking any witnesses who may have been in the area between two thirty and three AM. If you saw anything that might be able to assist with the our investigation, or indeed if you have any dashcam footage, you are asked to contact Drada Garda Station on 041-987-4200.
3: Next uh, to Garlow Cross for our next burglary.
11: Yes, again, another business plan, Mrs. Michael. So between two AM and three AM on Friday morning, the tenth of February Intruders gained entry to the Texco garage at Garlow Cross. They caused extensive damage to the property and stole a number of items. Investigating members at Navan Station are appealing for any witnesses to contact them. Perhaps you were driving along the Or 147 or the old entry between two and three a.m. and noticed something, or you might have dashcam footage. You're asked to contact Navan Station on 046 nine zero three six one zero zero.
3: Yeah, third business broken into, then this was a, a restaurant in Dundalk.
11: Yes, yeah, so well Saturday the eleventh of February between six thirty and seven AM Gardy responded to a call at Lennon's Bistro on the Castletown Road in Dundalk. A person had gotten into the bistro and caused damage inside the business. Gardy at Dundalk are investigating and hope that you can help them. Were you in the area? Did you see anything and maybe you've got dash cam footage. If you think you can help us Please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-8400.
3: And the fourth burglary that you're appealing for information about uh, this was uh, in Slane.
11: Yes. Yeah, so on Saturday the twelfth of February, Gardaí were alerted to suspicious activity at a building site in Slane Village at around eleven thirty pm. Gardaí from Navan Garda Station immediately responded and accounted a vehicle leaving the site. This vehicle was stopped and searched and a large amount of suspected stolen tools were found in the vehicle. One male was arrested and he was detained at Ashburn Garda station. We believe a number of other males left the scene as we were approached. We're asking anybody who witnessed any suspicious activity in the area or who may have information that could assist our investigation to contact Navan station on 046 9036100.
3: Now, two incidents of uh, criminal damage uh, to report on this week. The first, uh, I think, uh, a lot of people will be uh, aware of, uh, but you're hoping that somebody might come uh, forward with information about what happened on the Hill of Tara.
11: Yes, they are currently investigating an incident of criminal damage whereby the Leah Fall Standing Stone on the Hill of Tara was sprayed with graffiti. The incident happened, we believe, sometime between Monday evening, the 6th of February, and Tuesday morning, the 7th of February. The Fall is located at the centre of this historical site on the inauguration mound of the Hilatara. We're appealing for any witnesses or anyone who may have information in relation to the incident The please contact Navaguardia station on 046
3: Okay, and a second incident, uh, this happened in Drogheda.
11: Yes, yeah, so on Thursday last, the 9th of February, we were attending a meeting in Moneymore State in Drogheda. When they returned to their official card, they found that the windscreen had been smashed with a break. We're appealing to any witnesses or anyone who may have information to contact Drogheda Garda Station on zero four one nine eight seven four two zero zero, or and in relation to any of the incidents, you can contact the Garda Confidential Line on eighteen hundred travel six travel one.
3: Now, Cupid may come to visit, uh, but be careful, especially if you're anxious. Uh, there's a, a warning being issued by Angarda Shia Khan at the St. Valentine's Day to people not to fall victim to scams.
11: Yes, and given that it is St. Valentine's Day, we want to make your listeners aware that there are romance scams that can happen when you're engaging with people online. So we're just asking people to bear in mind, you don't know who you're talking to. Ask them for a recent photograph, ask them to go on a live video call, Ask to see their social media handles. So you want to check if their accounts are established or if they're new with very few friends. If you're going to meet someone, let them know where you're going. Send a text to a friend, share your location with them. Always meet in a public place and make sure that you're seeing your food and drinks being prepared. If you're going to another location, let your friend know again. If there's an emergency, contact us. And if anything happens, contact us. If someone asks you for money, think twice. They may have a compelling story, but a scammer has been gaining your trust and will use a number of stories to try and get your cash. Talk to friends, see if they think it's a good idea. Drop into your local guard station, ask them for advice. If you have sent someone money and realise it's a scam, please come and report us at the local guard station. Almost €2, two million was stolen in 2022. Don't let it be you this year.
3: Okay thank you indeed for that word of warning and happy valentine's day to you as well the like thank you very much indeed Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station we return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme now before we leave you a, a number of uh, comments coming to us uh, about the abuse of uh, those children somebody asking where was the father it's horrific what happened to those poor little children. Uh, another text uh, or WhatsApp message then uh, from somebody who says uh, it's just dreadful. Oh, my God, that's dreadful. The poor little pets, the people uh, should uh, face um, the consequences for what happened. Uh, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for your text and your emoji with tears, uh, and indeed some parts of your comment, uh, which perhaps we will read out after a sentence has been handed down, but not uh, until then. Uh, we had Tom in touch with us who says it's hardly surprising that guarded numbers are falling given the level of abuse and disrespect forced members face on a daily basis. Why would anyone choose that career for themselves in this day and age? Guardia treated like dirt by some. People and they're expected to protect themselves and others harmed with just a baton or pepper spray. It's ludicrous, says Tom. Stella was sickened listening uh, to the interview earlier on uh, with Mary Hayes of Women's Aid and the Two Into You uh, relationship survey. It's frightening to hear the high numbers of young people who see these destructive and controlling behaviours as normal or signs of love. It's just heartbreaking, Stella says Uh, I thought it was (laughs) beyond shocking Uh, I didn't, I found it very hard to believe the statistics that so many young people are in those situations Um, Larry says he he can't believe uh, that some people are are, are buying their loved ones jewellery with tracking devices in them, what on earth is wrong with these people how can they think it's love and try to trick or stalk your partner like uh, they're some sort of a household pest, it's disgusting to think that this type of thing goes on it does apparently, Larry. Thank you indeed, uh, and to everybody who's been in touch. That has to be our final word. Maggie McGuire, research today. Chris Murray was in the control. tower. I'm Michael Godwin. We'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning, nine a.m. LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye.
2: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at
4: lmfm.ie.